foundation of this, uh, seeing how Christ is the ultimate goal of all things, all history, and how much more so uh, the goal of Scripture. Uh, he is the uh, head over all creation. He's the head over the new creation, the church. Uh, all things will be made new in and through him and for him. Um, he is the, the conclusion of history. He's the, he's the uh, other end of the equation of everything else. Everything else adds up to, to him and his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the center of the cosmic universe as we know it and beyond. And as the supreme one, the preeminent one, Jesus Christ is the center of God's story of history. That's uh, number two on your notes. Last week was number one, so this week we'll go through number two and number three by God's grace. Before we begin, let me open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, and we ask, Lord, not just for your help, but for your complete enablement uh, for us to rightly divide your word this morning, for us to rightly appreciate and value it this morning, for for our heart to be yours, uh, that your passion in this world for the glory of your Son, Father. Uh, for that to transfer to us, it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for that work to be done this morning. Uh, and, and use your word as an instrument. Use your servant, Lord, to uh, convey your heart to your people. And Lord, may we be uh, a zealous people, a people um, uh, whose life's cry is, He must increase. I must decrease. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when we think about uh, the, the story of the Bible, when we think about the whole Bible from cover to cover, uh, you, you have to think of it as a book, right? That's what you hold in your hands, is a book. And as a book, uh, it's comprised of different types of writings. The most predominant kind of writing that's in the Bible is narrative, and it's just basically a, a story, just telling a story. That's narrative. That's what that means. The Bible as a whole has a narrative. It has a story. Now, there are many smaller narratives, many smaller stories in the Bible. Um, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 12, Genesis 22... There's all these compact, as it were, bite-sized kind of stories in the Bible, but is there a grand story? Uh, the doctrinal understanding of this grand story has two different kinds of names. It's, one is biblical theology. Biblical theology, it is the theology of, that takes into account the whole Bible. So biblical theology is trying to connect all the dots between Old Testament, New Testament, and all the passages, all the verses. Uh, you can also think of this as a meta-narrative, M-E-T-A, narrative, or meta-story. It's just the large story, the big story. Uh, biblical theology 
is the principle that all scripture is diverse, but yet unified. There's one theology. There's one teaching about God that is communicated in all of these writings. It comes from the understanding that all scripture has many human authors, but yet one divine author, uh, God the Holy Spirit. So there is one divine mind behind all of the theology that is taught in the Bible. And if that's so, then it makes sense that there is one theology, there is one teaching of God, and it's unified. It does not contradict. Also, we think about the story. If there is one divine author, then this one divine author is telling one grand story. This story, it must be unified. It must have one main character. It must have a central theme. Biblical theology is the guiding principle. Think of it this way. Biblical theology is the guiding principle that there is one thing being communicated about God. This meta-narrative or mega-story is the product of that principle that everything is unified. If the whole Bible is unified in the one mind of the Holy Spirit of, of God, then you're going to have one unified story. We, we looked last week as we began at uh, these, these trilogies or these, uh, these books or movies that come with all the sequels and, and then, you get, then it comes out later with these prequels, right? Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all these different stories. They're, they're individual chunks of stories, but yet there's one grand story because this comes from one author, right? Same thing with the scriptures, same thing. Now, in our Reformed heritage, our Reformed tradition, there's four chapters to this book, four chapters to the story uh, that God is unfolding through the ages. It goes creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. CFRC. Of course, the story begins with the creation of mankind and of the world, of the universe. But quickly it it goes down into the fall. And in Christ, we see the coming of redemption. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the anticipation of this final redemption. But in Christ, in his personal work, comes the uh, fulfillment of this expectation of redemption. And then at the end, when all things are made new, we see consummation. Where we are uh, made one with our God and we are brought into his fellowship for all eternity. That's one way to view the grand story. If you want to break it up into quote-unquote chapters or acts, uh, think of it that way, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. 
But even with those chapters, what's the unifying theme? We would argue, because of what we looked at last week, that all of the story, the the larger meta-narrative, the mega-story of the Bible, is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, John 5.39, I think you have it up there in front of you. Can somebody read that for us nice and loud? Thank you. See, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, and he tells them, all the scriptures that you're searching, now, now what scriptures did, they, did these guys have at this time? The law. the law. Yeah, the Old Testament. So they're searching the law, they're searching the Old Testament, the Psalms, the, the, the writings is the general category, the prophets, They're searching all of those Old Testament uh, books. And he says, you know, you think that in them is is found eternal life, but they're really talking about me. They're talking about me, a person. It's interesting. That isn't, I mean, if you think about it, isn't looking for eternal life a good thing? I mean, isn't the whole Bible kind of leading? Isn't, aren't our lives leading to that, that eternal life in heaven? Well, he says there's something greater than eternal life. There, if you, even, you can zoom out even farther, past eternal life or above eternal life. And, and when, when you zoom out farther, there is a, there is a more all-encompassing theme. There is a more all-encompassing goal. It's not just heaven and eternal life. It's me, he says. Jesus Christ himself. The person and work of Christ is the central theme. He is the plot line. He is the story. He is the topic of the entire Bible. Now we need to go to Luke 24. Luke 24 I think many of us are familiar with this passage, I hope. But if you're not, that's all right. It's a sweet passage right at the end of the Gospel of Luke. After Christ has died and he's been raised from the dead, but his disciples don't know that yet. And so they're despondent. They're just depressed and all hope is gone. And they're just ready to give up if they haven't already. And then in verse 25, it says, looking at them and their just hopelessness, he says, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he is comforting them with the word of God, which is a good place to go to for comfort. If you need comfort, you go to God's word. If you know somebody that is depressed and needs comfort, you bring them to God's word and, to the, and help them have the bigger picture. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's helping them have the bigger picture 
look, this isn't, just a, this isn't just about what you're going through right now. God is doing something greater. And he has promises. And look at the promises that he unfolds to them. Verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you. He's basically, let me remind you again what I told you already. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So where does he go to for this, um, for this lesson? What are the different places he go to in, in, to, in the Old Testament? Uh, go look at uh, verse 44. So the prophets, the Psalms, and... The Law of Moses. So the Law of Moses is the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. The books written by Moses himself. The prophets are all the major and minor prophets. And uh, many of the historical books that we understand as history uh, are considered in this category of prophetic writing. And then you have the Psalms, and the Psalms is basically the main book in this category called the writings, the writings. So, and so the writings was the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Um, these books were more poetic writings. Uh, Job is in that as well. Those poetic writings... Are, were called kind of generally the writings, but here he specifies it in Psalms because that was the main one, of course. When we think of poetic writing in the Old Testament, we immediately go to Psalm, right? So that's the same thing that Jesus does. So you see, every single category of the Old Testament, there's no book that's left out between uh, the Law of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, between the writings, all of the poetic writings, and then all the prophets, major, minor, and the historical prophets, the historical books. All of these, he says, what, what are all these pointing towards? What are, all the, what are all these sections of Old Testament Scripture pointing towards? The Christ. That's right. And notice how specific he is. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ, so it's all about the Christ, but look specifically, there's the suffering, there's the rising again um, from, the thir- uh, from the dead on the third day, there's repentance, there's forgiveness, there's sin, there's, e- there's worldwide missions, his name being proclaimed to the nations, there's God's heart for Jerusalem, for Israel. All of these things are all in the Old Testament. Some of these things we think of as just New Testament realities, but they're all in the Old Testament if you're looking for them, if you know what to look for. So the personal work of Christ is is the central theme of Scripture. It concerns 
God's person, character, his achievements, past, present, future. That's what the Bible is all about. And so, therefore, it is centered on the person of Christ and his work of redemption. You always have to think of those two things in connection. Those are two sides of the same coin, person and work. When you think of Jesus, person and work. We have to get that right. Many, if not most, I would say all, (laughs) all false religions that have a connection to Christ but are off and they're a cult, they have either the person or the work off. Their understanding of who Jesus is is, will be off, like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Their their understanding of his work will be off, like a Jehovah's Witness or uh, a Roman Catholic. Their understanding of either the person or the work will be skewed off. And so we see how important Understanding who Jesus Christ is and what he has done is so critical to your relationship with God. If you get either of those wrong, then you get it all wrong. And you end up with a cult. You end up with a false religion. You end up without eternal life. So, it, all, all of the Old Testament is about the Messiah, his sufferings to his glory. From sufferings to glory. It's about what Christ would do, especially in his last three days leading to the cross. The Old Testament contains themes like covenant, kingdom, Israel, commandments, stories. But all of these are pieces of a broader story. And it's all the story of Jesus Christ. Oh, we don't have time. All right. I don't think I'm going to get any pushback, any argument about this reality. So we're just going to push ahead to point three. Point three. How do we do this? So this is kind of anticipating our next teaching series in Equipping Hour, which is hermeneutics. Um, But but I I just can't wait to give you some tools to help. I know many of you are in the Old Testament in your Bible reading plans, and I want you to see Christ in all of his glory there. I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to have to wait. So we're going to try and get through this material. Um. The New Testament apostles, the New Testament apostles read their Old Testament, our Old Testament, in light of Christ. They they weren't looking for some uh, mystical uh, meaning. They they didn't have to have, you know, those glasses that you see in um, National Treasure. Isn't that the movie, right? where you have to have these special glasses to really decipher what's going on on the map. Uh, You don't have to have that uh, in order to see Christ. It's all right there in front of you, but we have to be looking for the right thing. Uh, In the Old Testament, there is a meaning of the Old Testament. 
But there is also a fulfillment of that meaning. So there, there is, in the Old Testament, um, Psalm 38, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down upon me. Now there's an immediate meaning there. Um, that David is asking in his personal relationship with God that God not discipline him harshly, even though he deserves it. Certainly think of what he did with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah uh, and, the, and the deceit and the lies and the selfishness that happened there in David's sin. But as Nathan confronted him, says, you are the man, right? Uh, David repents, and we can see his heart here in, in repentance, that he, un- he understands that he deserves the rebuke, but he asks for mercy in the midst of God's discipline. Yet, there are in Scripture these clues that there is a greater sense where this, these Old Testament realities are fulfilled even more so. Fulfilled to the fullest, so we can think of Jesus Christ on the cross as bearing our sin and him crying out, Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Right? Echoing the cries of Psalm 22, that's probably a better one for me to turn to. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I cry, my God, by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You see, David went through that as a man, under the heavy hand of God's discipline, his loving discipline. He, he, it felt like God was forsaking him, But yet, we understand at the cross, Christ fulfilled this to the nth degree. He filled this to the full. He filled this cry of David's heart. This cry of David's heart became Christ's cry from his heart there on the cross. And the depth and the fullness of this cry... Uh, was the deepest and the fullest there on the cross. The forsakenness that David uh, experienced uh, doesn't hold a candle to the forsakenness that Christ experienced on the cross. So there, this principle is called census plenar. I wish we could write it up here, but it's census, S-E-N, S-U-S, plenier, P-L-E-N-I-O-R, if you want that. It just means uh, fuller sense or full sense. So where we get the idea of, of this fuller meaning. That's what we're talking about here with Psalm 22, where 
There was a meaning, there was a sense when David wrote it, but there is this fuller sense when Christ utters the same words, right? And so we see that, that principle, that kind of pattern all over the Old Testament. Now, this doesn't mean that when you read the Old Testament, there's some hidden meaning behind it that isn't related to that that immediate or first impression kind of meaning as you read it. It's, it's not like uh, none of the Old Testament makes sense without Jesus. It makes sense, but it is always leading to him. Uh, the, when the apostles read their Old Testament in light of Christ, uh, they did not find something completely different there. They didn't find something completely new. They, it, they didn't do allegory, which is some mystical meaning, you know, putting, uh, uh, making the main pillar of the tabernacle Christ and then the other four pillars, uh, the, the, uh, what were the, the saints devoted to? The, the uh, fellowship of the saints, the, the apostles' teaching, the prayer, uh, and the breaking of bread, Right? So the, the, the posts of the tabernacle weren't the prayers and the breaking of bread, right? They were the posts of the tabernacle. We, that's allegory. That's not how we should read the Old Testament. Think of it this way. Uh, if, if we were to, if this was, if we were in the middle of the night, right? If it was midnight right now, it'd be dark out. No light would be coming in from the windows. If we shut up all the all the doors and all the blinds and, all, and we even put curtains over the, the, uh, the windows, turn off all the lights, it'd be pitch black, right? Now, this podium wouldn't all of a sudden vanish in that pitch black, right? You wouldn't be able to see it, but it would be there, right? If we, and we do, if we had these dimmer switches, you know what a dimmer switch is, right? When he goes very slowly in the brightness of the lights. If we had this dimmer switch and we just turned it on just a hair and you were able just to make, that, make out the outlines. You knew that there was some sort of a box here, but you weren't sure exactly what it was. You, you don't even know what color it is. Um, you, you, can't, you can't discern the details, the chair that you sit in, you couldn't tell if it was black or white or green or blue. You just know that there's this form in the room. But then as the light is slowly turned a little bit more brighter, you get to see more detail, right? The, the chair has color, there's patterns, uh, there's measurements, there's form and, and specificity to what you're seeing becomes more and more increasing. The details become more and more obvious and uh, observable. It's like that with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So think of the person and the work of Jesus Christ throughout the whole scripture, but then as, as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you go into the, the, the historical books, First and Second Samuel about this king, 
And there's this everlasting king that's promised, but it's not David. Um, and then you get into the Psalms, and there's these, uh, there's these expectations for God to do eternal things. Uh, you get into Isaiah, and there's this suffering servant uh, who is yet identified with Israel. There's all these more and more detail, and then all of a sudden, in Matthew 1, the lights go all the way on. See, that's what we're talking about with census plenier, with this fuller sense, this, this understanding of the mega story. It's always there. The personal work of Jesus is always there. But as the, the dimmer switch of revelation is, is slowly increased through time, and as you read more and more of the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament, that God is revealing what has always been there, but just in greater and greater detail. That's the idea here. More light is brought into the same room, revealing the same objects. In the mega story of the Bible, the story has always been the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has just been giving more and more light to that reality. So, what are three ways of seeing Christ in the Old Testament? Well, the first and most obvious way is through Christophanies. Christophany, you have that on your notes. And you have the passages there. Uh, Genesis 16, uh, we, we see uh, Christ, the Son of God, who is called the Angel of God. He comes and speaks with Hagar. Remember Hagar? Sarai's handmaid. Uh, Sarai had Hagar uh, be with uh, Abram. Uh, and she bore a son. Hagar bore a son. But yet Sarai, uh, uh, it seems, uh, antagonized and badly treated Hagar because there was this, seems like jealousy there. That this woman could bear my husband a son, but I can't. And the promise is going to happen through this woman and not through me, his, his wife. Um, so there's that animosity. So much so that Hagar is, is forced out of the home. And she's on her own. And then there in her desperation, there in her rejected state, uh, the Son of God comes and meets her. I love that comes and meets her and, and tells her, uh, I'm going to bless you. You're not gonna, your child's not going to be the child of the covenant, but I'm going to bless him. I'm going to bless your seed um, through him. Um, I, I, I'm not ignoring you. And I see your pain that you're going through. And I, don't, and I want to console you in that pain. Genesis 18, we see Abraham... Uh, there, we see Abraham in Genesis 18, uh, that was, he was already given the promise of, uh, of an heir, but he was old already, kind of the same storyline. He was already old, and he, didn't, he had lost all hope that you know, God could give him a son, especially through his wife, Sarai. And so, and so God himself, in the form of uh, this, this man, this angel of the Lord, comes and has a meal with this man 
and gives him the promise again and says, with God, all things are possible. And so the angel of God there in Genesis 18 gives that promise again to Abraham, reassures God's work in his life and his blessing upon him and his seed. And then he goes and, dis- and, and uh, destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. So both in the promising of blessing and in the punishment of sin, we see this pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, uh, being involved in both of those things. And so we already see there in the Old Testament, in, by Genesis 18, you already see that this Son of God, this, uh, this, this second person of the Trinity, is involved in redemption, is involved in uh, blessing the nations through Israel, but he's also involved in judgment. So you see, we're already seeing, we're already seeing these clues about this, this one. And of course, these realities connect to the, the New Testament, right? Where Christ brings the redemption and we anticipate him bringing judgment. He is the one to whom we, we answer. He will be the judge. He is the judge of heaven and earth. And that began in Genesis 18. Amazing. Genesis 32, we, we saw this at the first week of this year, back in January, that uh, as Jacob was hesitant in doubting God's promises to him, and he is uh, uh, staying at the back of his, um, his procession of his, of his family on this trek, he's at the back because he's just scared. He, he, he's, he's scared of Esau, who they're about to meet. We see uh, at night God meeting Jacob and promising him that he, God will fight for him and that he has nothing to fear. And so he wrestles with Jacob there in Genesis 32. Joshua 5, let's turn there. for We've we, we got to look at one, right? Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. We're just going to look at um, till the end of chapter 5. Beginning in verse 13, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you of us or, excuse me, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. I love that answer. No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. 
So Joshua meets this man, and he reveals himself the, the, the Lord of or the captain of the of the host of the Lord. And Joshua says, what do you have to say to me? What's the message? And it's amazing what he says, right? Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Now, we should understand, we should, that should sound familiar, right? Now Moses, in Exodus 3, was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. Again, the angel of the Lord. Appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. God is self-sustaining. Verse 3, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burnt up. And when the Lord saw, notice it's Yahweh, when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So the same God in the midst of the burning bush is the same God that takes the form of man here in front of Joshua in Joshua 5. Amazing. It's the same God. We see that there is this angel of the Lord who claims this same deity, this same effect on the ground around him because he is holy, the ground around him is holy. That dirt is not like the other dirt that, you're, that you just walked by. It's holy dirt because I'm here. That's the same God. See, in Judges 6, that Gideon meets the angel of the Lord. Judges 13, that the angel of the Lord speaks to Samson's mother. And it's interesting, one thing that I've noticed in my own studies, that whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, whenever this pre-incarnate Christ shows up, there is always this theme. Look at what's happening in the story. There is always this connection, this very immediate connection to the person and work of Christ. Specifically in his work of redemption. There is always this immediate connection. We get a glimpse into who Jesus really is. Because you're seeing who he's always been. And so we see through all these things, his compassion his promise, his judgment, uh, his, his going to battle with his people, his defending his people, his liberating and, and, and uh, delivering of his people. We see the, that he goes to war for us and fights our enemies. All of these things directly connected to the personal work of Christ. Now, that's Christophanies. Those are kind of the more, most obvious a couple more, maybe, maybe the next one is a little, 
less obvious, I guess you could say. It's under this heading typology. Typology. So what is typology? What's a type? A type is an Old Testament person, animal, object, event, or institution. Person, animal, object, event, or institution. uh, Which was intended by God to prefigure some future reality. And it was usually and primarily related to, again, the person and work of Christ. Usually and primarily related to Christ. So it's an Old Testament person, animal, object, event, institution, anything in the Old Testament that was intended by God to prefigure some greater future reality. Now, in that definition, uh, there's some difficulty because it's not, it does, notice it doesn't say it's anything in the Old Testament, right? You can't just open the Old Testament and, and go to a certain object and, see, and say, that's Christ right there. He's not under every rock uh, and behind every bushel, it said, in the Old Testament. We have to try and figure out, did God intend this to point forward to Christ? That's where it gets more difficult. Because we're trying to discern what God is telling us in the written word. That becomes very difficult. But nonetheless, a, a type is, you can think of it very simply as an illustration. A type is an illustration. It's something in the Old Testament that God intended to illustrate something that would be revealed in the New Testament. It's an illustration. It served as a picture of something to come. And so it needs to be obvious. It needs to be direct. It needs to be easily recognized because we have to be able to defend that this is what God intended. So it can't be some... It can't be a stretch, like with the uh, five pillars of the Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament tent um, that we mentioned before. Specifically, um, here are some examples of types. Leviticus 1, 1 through 4. Can you bring that up, brother? Can somebody read verses 1 through 4? Okay, I think that's to verse 4, brother. Thank you. Now, John 1, 29, let's see the fulfillment of this illustration, the fulfillment of this type. Somebody read that. 
So you see how the old, in the Old Testament, this, the type was the sacrifices. The whole Levitical system, the whole Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. That was, and there was the expectation that you know, these sacrifices made had to be without blemish, pure, perfect. Uh, and, and the point was uh, so that God's people could be with God be, and that separation would, of sin would be removed so that God can commune with his people and his people could worship their God, right? We see in John one twenty nine that Jesus Christ was what this was all pointing towards, how Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb. He is without blemish. He is perfect. See, that he came to remove, take away the sin of the world and the sin which comes between man and God so that now what? God and man can be united so that man can worship God and God can be with man. That was anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, Another one is uh, in Genesis 14. We won't go there. Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Uh, he just comes out of nowhere uh, in Genesis 14. And he's kind of explained a little bit in Psalm 110. But essentially, the, the, the main markers of this Melchizedek character was that he didn't have any genealogy. It doesn't mean that he was God. It just means that his genealogy was excluded from the account. And so it's as if he had no genealogy, no father or mother to account for him. Um, just comes out of nowhere, as it were. And then also in Genesis 10, we see uh, Abraham uh, giving tithes to Melchizedek. So him respecting this, this man. We see Melchizedek is, all, is both a priest and a king. Both a priest and a king. And Psalm 110 picks up on some of these things. And then Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 explain uh, in, in, in a short way how Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Testament type. Melchizedek was an illustration of this coming one who, as it were, came out of nowhere with no genealogy, who's, who has no beginning. That is Jesus Christ. He, has, he is eternal, isn't he? He has no beginning. And he is a priest and a king, isn't he? Uh, w- one more. Numbers 21, 6 through 9. Can we read that, please? Numbers 21, 6 through 9. Bit any man when he looked 
on serpent he lived. All right, and can somebody read uh, John three fourteen, and how Christ is connected with these bronze serpent? So you see, we see in the Old Testament, there's this um, judgment for sin, right? Remember that in, in Numbers 21, the people were grumbling against God. And so God afflicts them with these serpents, and they bite them, and they're dying, and they need relief. And so he says, make a bronze serpent and put it on the staff, the standard, and hold it up. And when they look at that bronze serpent, then they're healed. That's just faith, right? Just look and believe that that looking will heal you. John 3, Christ says, same way. God sends his son, and I'm going to be put on a standard. I'm going to be put on the cross, another piece of wood. I'm going to be raised up, and whoever looks at me in faith as their cure for their sin will be saved. Same thing. Amazing. So we have to be looking for Christ in the Old Testament. You're not going to find him. You're not going to see him if you're not looking. Uh, we don't have time, but there's a third way of, of prophecy. Uh, there's different kinds of prophecy. Uh, in Isaiah 7, there's the prediction of the virgin birth, and then in Luke 1, there's the fulfillment. And that's called Single fulfillment, right? There's just, there's no other virgin birth in history. And so this prophecy of a virgin birth is just going to have one fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then we have in Psalm 72, where it's talking about God's uh, king over his people in Psalm 72. But yet in verses 8 and 17, there are these Phrases that seem to, to go beyond the ability of just an earthly king. Phrases like that he will rule, rule from sea to sea. And phrases like in verse 17 of Psalm 72 that his name will endure forever. So there, there is this short way uh, where kings like David fulfill this Psalm of 72. But yet there are parts of it that is just beyond his reach. And so we see in Matthew 28, 18, where Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth, right? Not just from sea to sea, but from heaven to earth. And everything in between is given to me. And then Luke 1, 31, we see that the kingdom of this Christ, of this baby that's born there in Luke 1, uh, his kingdom will never end. It will endure forever. So... This is called um, prophetic foreshortening, if you want to know. Prophetic foreshortening. It's basically there are prophecies where there is an immediate uh, person that can fulfill that, but yet there are also ways where it anticipates somebody even greater than that immediate fulfillment. If You need to be looking for those kinds of phrases like uh, these these. Vast 
you know, fulfillment kinds of phrases like forever and for all eternity and, and from sea to sea and the whole world. Those kinds of phrases give you a clue that this, isn't, this can't just be talking about this guy here. It has to be talking about the coming Christ. One more. There is this filling full, filling full prophecy. It's, it's kind of it lines up with typology a little bit. It's where an office or a theme is repeatedly referred to in the Old Testament with increasing clarity and detail, ultimately leading to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Remember that dimmer switch? It's always about the Messiah, but we're seeing more and more detail ever increasing. This filling full prophecy uh, and even typology, it, it overlaps a little bit. These themes that you should be looking for in the Old Testament that are given more and more revelation and fully and finally in the person and work of Christ are themes like temple, kingdom, seed, prophet, priest, king, water, shepherd, blood, covenant, Sabbath, deliverance, and there's more. In case you were writing them down, because I saw some of you like writing frantically, temple, kingdom, seed, prophet, priest, king, water, shepherd, blood, covenant, Sabbath, deliverance. If you just have these few themes to kind of hold on to, if you write it down on a post-it note and just, and just keep it in your Bible as you're reading through the Old Testament, it'll help you a lot as you're looking for these things. Uh, but possibly the greatest theme of Scripture is that of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. You might be thinking that sounds like a doctrine word. How is that in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament? Well, starting in the Garden of Eden, God kills an animal to cover the physical shame brought on by sin. Genesis 3.21. Then again, we see substitutionary atonement in Abraham's son, where instead of Abraham killing his firstborn son, he kills the ram that is caught in the bush. And then we go to Exodus chapter 12, where the Passover lamb is killed and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts and lintel of God's people's houses, where if that animal dies and you prove it by the blood, then God won't kill your firstborn son. Then we see it in the Mosaic sacrificial system in Leviticus, especially Leviticus 16. We see the two... Um, two animals, the two goats. One is a sacrificial goat where it is killed for the sins of the people and then the other one is a scapegoat where the guilt of the people is placed upon that goat and then just 
shunned from the presence of God, removed into outer darkness, as it were. Both goats together, both animals together, giving a full picture of the work of Christ, where he died for our sin, but, and, yet, and he was also rejected by God for our sin. And then in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 4-6, where he was crushed for our iniquities. And then, brother, if you can pull out 1 Peter 2, 24, is ultimately all of these things in the Old Testament leading to Christ's atoning work on the cross. Can somebody read that? First Peter two twenty four. Is it there? And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. All right. All of it leading to us being healed by the wounds of another, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, the Bible has many authors, but one author, many stories, but one story, right? Many characters, but one main character. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He has been given first place in everything, and his supremacy and authority extends over all things. The Christ-centeredness of Scripture uh, is the result of Christ's universal supremacy and authority. And the person and work of Jesus Christ is the central theme, plot line, story, and topic of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your Son. We thank you for giving him to us so that we can benefit from his stripes, his wounds that we can be healed from our sin by the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give us a few books to describe our lovely Savior. You gave, him, you gave us an entire book from page to page describing all of his glory. Lord, it took all of history up to this point to describe the Son. He is so magnificent. And so, Father, we ask that you would make our daily readings in your word, Lord, make them sweet as we see our Savior. As we behold him in all his glory, I pray that you would give your, your children eyes to see the great one, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.